0: Welcome to Conversations Live, Asia-Pacific, Where To From Here is our title, our working title. And tonight we come to you from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish First Nations, who have lived on and continue to call these lands home, Osiam. Tonight, what was for quite some time known as Asia-Pacific has now morphed into Indo-Pacific. A region that may play, and I emphasize the word may play a critical role in shaping Canada's future over the next half century. Within the Indo Pacific, there are 40 economies that are home to more than 4 billion people who collectively generate more than $47 trillion in economic activity today, and those economies are all growing. In other words, we're talking about the world's fastest growing region a region that is home to six of Canada's top 13 trading partners. The Indo-Pacific region represents significant opportunities for growing the economy here at home, as well as opportunities for Canadian workers and businesses for decades to come. And it's clear, it's important that we capitalize on those opportunities. Just last week, Stats Canada reported that Canadian GDP shrank by 1.1%, as compared to a 5% increase in the United States. It's a bit of a damning indicator on the direction Canada is headed, especially when it comes to our ability to do business internationally. The questions tonight are economic in nature, such as, will we step up and deliver on the products and services that the Indo-Pacific region requires? or? Will we watch those opportunities pass us by? There are many challenges we face if we hope to derive economic benefits from the region. And frankly, many of the impediments to our future success, well, they are self-generated. And while it's true we have created barriers, could those barriers also serve as safeguards? As we seek to expand our presence in Indo-Pacific, we have to be aware that doing so brings with it security risks. Are we inviting trouble at home? Are we risking intellectual property and also putting Canadians at risk abroad? Now, just before we begin, I'm gonna express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who have made Conversations Live a reality. They are Stem Cell Technologies, Oh, sorry, I got to start with our presenting sponsors. Very important. KPMG, who's hosting us tonight, RBC, and the magnificent HeliJet. Our event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, Beatty, the Port of Vancouver, I, I promise it's not too long of a list, the Digital Technology Supercluster, Research Co., and our media partner. Is the Vancouver Sun. BCIT is also a supporter and I want to especially thank Apple G Public Relations and give a big shout out to my team at Oldboy Productions who are experts in online and virtual event production like this and live video press conferences. That's our little plug. One last thing for everyone who may wish to pose a question. Please go to slido.com, enter the password conversations and send in your question. Sean, our Slido master over here, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us. Now we won't be able to get to them all, but I have to tell you they really help us as we um, develop topics and questions that we'll be asking the panel this evening. So to further set the stage, here is Mario Conseco, a research co who just conducted a poll for us about our opinions on and about the importance of our business and diplomatic relationships that stretch halfway around the world. So Maya, can you please play
1: Mario's video? 35 years have passed since the signing of the original free trade agreement between Canada and the United States. In 2023, for more than two thirds of Canadians, the time to diversify and be less dependent on our neighboring nation is now. This is a view that is remarkably consistent across the four most populous provinces, rising to 73% in British Columbia. Just over half of Canadians believe economic and political relations with Asia should be a major focus of the country's foreign policy. This idea is favored by two thirds of Albertans and three in five BC residents, but finds lower support in Ontario. In Quebec, skepticism about Asia gaining foreign policy significance is markedly higher. In spite of earlier controversies related to Asian involvement in Canadian industries, just over half of Canadians believe the country stands to gain if Asian countries choose to invest more. As expected, British Columbians are at the top of the list, with practically three in five foreseeing benefits for the whole country if additional Asian investment is welcome. The appetite of Asian markets for Canada's energy resources has not gone unnoticed across the country. Three in five Canadians think it is imperative for the country to develop strategies that would allow Canadian resources to reach these new markets. In BC, where discussions about LNG exports have been dominant for the past decade, agreement with this course of action reaches 71%. While Canadians are keenly aware of the trade opportunities presented by Asia, our views on whether Canada is a component of the Asia-Pacific region are varied. Fewer than three in 10 Albertans, Ontarians, and Quebecers believe this is the case, while majorities question whether Canada belongs in this group of nations. While the perception of BC residents is slightly more positive, only 42% consider Canada a part of the Asia-Pacific region. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchCo. Thank you, Mario. We have an amazing panel tonight
0: who will dig beneath the surface of this very important topic. Sitting next to me is Sukesh Kumar, who is the audit partner and national leader of KPMG's India practice in Canada. And he also sits on the advisory council of the Canada India Business Council. Next to Sukesh is Duncan Wilson. The vice president of environment and external affairs at the port of vancouver next to duncan is dr indira samurai sakara a former president and vice chancellor of the university of alberta and a member of the board of trans canada energy magna international and stelco i should also note that david turpin a another former president and vice chancellor of the university of alberta and the former president of the University of Victoria joins us in the audience this evening. David, thanks for joining us. Mike DeYoung, MLA for Abbotsford West and the shadow cabinet member for the attorney general joins us. And joining us virtually is Jeff Nankovell, the president and CEO of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Jeff is joining us remotely from Ottawa where he is part of an event that is taking place there with the Canada West Foundation on this very topic today and tomorrow. We also have a video comments from Paul Thoppel, Canada's Indo-Pacific Trade Representative, Senator Yuan Pao Wu, and Supply Chain Specialist from the Sauter School of Business, Samuel Roscoe. Samaya, so just before I turn to the panel, will you please play uh, the clip from Paul Topple, Canada's new Trade Minister, to Indo-Pacific.
2: It's about understanding understanding. that we need to deepen uh, the relationship in what I would say is a sustained way, because Asian culture requires relationships before you transact the business. But fundamentally, it's about where the growth is in the world. And according to the IMF, uh, the large economy growth is in India, And from a regional perspective, the fastest growth is in Southeast Asia. So from a Canadian economic prosperity perspective, we need to engage where the growth is in order to have more growth in our economy. And we also have to acknowledge that our national trade uh, exposure as a nation is not as diversified as it should be. And as we look at rising protectionism around the world, and as we look at geopolitical risks, having a diversified national trade portfolio that also incorporates a strong element of growth is fundamental to Canada's uh, future success. And that's what the Indo Pacific strategy subscribes to, which is a commitment which is long term. So it's not a transitional document, it's a 10 year strategy. And we know that based on that degree of commitment based on a significant investment by the federal government which is 2.3 billion over five years and calling for a midterm review to course correct based on what we see in the region what has worked what has not worked that sincerity that we're telegraphing to asian governments and to asian businesses and most importantly to our own citizens is going to be, I think, the key elements of what I believe will be a successful strategy.
0: Duncan, I'd like to start with you. Uh, You've just come back from the region. Uh, When you listen to Mr. Thoppel, uh, is what he's saying resonating with your experience there? Um, And are we at a uh, a very important uh, intersection in what can be uh, opportunities for Canada?
3: Thanks, Stu. Well, definitely, um, there's uh, there's a tremendous amount of interest in 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 Asia and in the Indo-Pacific region in terms of doing business with Canada, and um, I think we have a um, there, there's there's a, a brand value, if you will, of we're we're a stable country, uh, reliable trading partner. Um, we have things that these countries need, um, and uh, hopefully we can we'll hear more tonight about other things that we can do uh, to provide uh, exports to those countries. Um, and we also do, uh, we have a, a robust, uh, import trade with many of these countries. While I was in Asia, um, we were in, in several countries and, um, the consistent theme is, is that, um, and, uh, there's also a very large focus on decarbonization and, and working with, with, with us on those matters. And, um, And also investment and uh, so when you I heard you mention in your opening remarks the the uh, the possibility of investment that is that is clearly a focus and uh, I know there's a lot of there's a lot more focus on that now here in Canada in terms of the kinds of foreign investment that Canada wants to welcome and uh, so clearly that's something that we need to discuss but there's a lot of interest in doing business here investing here doing trade with us Um, and Looking at the volumes, we're seeing a consistent pattern overall in the basket of the 40 countries of the Indo-Pacific of increasing trade. In each in each economy, it, it, it varies year to year, and as you expect, there will be cyclical patterns. Um, but uh, we're seeing a very consistent
0: pattern of, of increase. Sukesh, you have also come back recently from the region and also been... Uh, uh interacting and visiting with many people who are having these high-level discussions where are we at are we at the talking stage or are we actually starting to get down to uh, realizing opportunities
4: yeah I think if you look at the you know the, the region itself uh, clearly if you look at the indo-pacific strategy and you heard Paul talk about it the opportunity that exists coming kind of like at this stage right now. Um, I think the, the challenge we have um, as a country is we have a big elephant just down south that we keep on trading and it's easier, you know, similar kind of time zones, similar way of doing things. But the biggest thing that I think Paul touched upon that we have to focus on is the diversification. We have to get out uh, and look for new markets, and Indo Pacific clearly provides that uh, opportunity. Maybe later on, I'd love to come back to one, you know, in particular that I focus on in India a little bit. But if you look at the whole region itself, you look at, you know, three of the largest, you know, five uh, economies right now are in that region at this stage, and they will become even bigger player. You look at the consumption that's taking place right now. I think they're expecting that by 2040, the world's GDP, 50% of the GDP, is going to come from that region. So I think if you go, th- go through that, I think it's, it's very critical for us to get engaged. Now coming to your question, I think we are talking about it. We have to put things to action on both sides. The government is there to play a role of an, an enabler, but the industry also have to get engaged and get serious about taking the opportunity um, and, and, and looking at that region, both for investment, trade, immigration, young workforce, uh, you look at uh, the students so it becomes a very very critical market for us to really focus on uh, because like Canada is a trading country if we don't have a trade we don't have the the um, our our lifestyle as good as you got right now so we really have to focus on it and, and push hard as you move forward
0: well I think it's interesting that you touched on talking about students uh, that is a multi faceted uh, topic all on its own, and Indira, I, I know that you're on the boards of three organizations that are very interested in uh, you know, exploring opportunities in the region, but in your role as president of the University of Alberta, you, in essence, were selling education, and there is a market that we can look at and say, what What have we done right, and what can other industries learn from that?
5: So, thank you, Stu. <laughs> can you hear me? Yep. <laughs> um, One of the things that I I think we have done right is we have made Canadian universities attractive for students from that part of the world. And uh, certainly my colleague here, David, can probably attest to that because he was part of that. Rapid increase in students from that part of the world into the undergraduate programs. That's been good. Some challenges though, and we've all read about it, uh, around um, issues with students being promised of potential work permits and so on, and, and not being delivering those permits, and students coming here and being truly disappointed. So we, we've got to address that. But I think there's something that we, we need to do better. We need to be more, have more surgical precision when it comes to our approach. And I'll take India. I went to India every year for 10 years because the number of Indian students we were attracting was quite, quite modest compared to China. And we had to diversify. And the country that has done extremely well in attracting Indian students is the United States of America. The Indian IITs, which graduate 10,000 unbelievable bright engineers, uh, go straight to graduate school. In fact, when I visited, the whole class had offers from Stanford and Berkeley and wherever they wanted to go. We don't position ourselves like that. And the result in the US has been 30% of the Fortune 500 CEOs are Indians, many of them from IIT. 30% of the engineers in the Silicon Valley come from those IITs. So all this to say, we've done some things well. but we've got to go a lot more strategic. And we have to go after the kind of talent that will bring us the kind of entrepreneurial energy that I think has been manifest in the US by virtue of that approach.
0: Well, having those students here uh, going to school uh, builds future relationships with them, even if they return home. Right. Uh, so it's in, it's a very important part of a, a long term strategy. Right. Um, and we, I think that we have to get away from the idea of looking at as as though somehow, oh, they're taking seats from Canadian students. Actually, it's uh, the development of long term relationships, which uh, you know Paul Thoppel had said is fundamental yeah. in our development. Jeff, I see you nodding away there, and uh, clearly you're in agreement. Uh, Your thoughts on sort of initially as we're moving forward, and also what are you hearing out of the conference that you're at in Ottawa today?
6: Well, uh, first of all, in in terms of moving forward, and in terms of uh, you know the growth story in Asia, I think I think there's a there's an important thing to understand about the nature of the growth in Asia. So you know, a, a percentage point of growth in an Asian economy these days is, is, offers different kind, different market opportunities than a percentage point of growth in the US economy or a Western European economy, or even uh, for the more mature developed economies like Japan and and Korea. So talking about emerging economies, you know, each percentage point of growth in, in these countries like in Southeast Asia and South Asia that have very favorable demographics. They've got lots of new young people coming into the labor force each year, but they've also got, you know every time economic growth takes up, you have millions of households who are crossing income thresholds uh, each year, which means their consumption habits are changing. They're starting to buy different types of goods and services. They are able to afford education abroad for their, their young people. They are interested in consumer products of a type that uh, in which Canada excels uh, in areas like nutritional supplements and very high quality uh, you know, packaged foods of different kinds and, and higher quality ingredients. And, and, uh, and these are consumers whose, whose tastes uh, are still developing and they haven't been uh, shaped you know, by a century of, of advertising and brand loyalty Uh, You know, very hard to claw market share away from established players in consumer markets in places like Western Europe and the U.S. and and even Canada. But there's an opportunity in in the fact that these economies are transforming and you have uh, millions of people joining the middle class and moving up through the ranks of the middle class. And that that offers growth opportunities for higher and higher value products from, from Canada. Uh, in terms of the conference I'm at, it's it's looking at a year of experience since the federal government released its Indo-Pacific strategy uh, in late November of last year. And uh, we've had speakers uh, from uh, kind of different sectors. We've also had speakers from Australia and the U.S. looking at Canada comparatively and from Japan and kind of taking stock of of how things are going so far, and I, I would I think I would say that uh, that there is a, something of a consensus, which is that the plan that was unveiled by the government uh, last year is an ambitious one. It's it's to be commended for for being ambitious, and you know these kinds of grand strategies are very rare for Canadian governments, especially in the area of foreign policy. So so there was some talk about you know a for effort for the plan. And the fact that there are resources to back it up, there, there are increased resources in the in the area of defense, in people to people exchanges. I should say in the interest of full disclosure that the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada with our headquarters in Vancouver will itself be receiving resources that will enable us for the first time to open up an office in Singapore and stand up new programs in Southeast Asia to aim squarely at helping to build connections between, between Southeast Asia and Canada. But I would say the consensus of the discussion was that, uh, that the, the plan is not bad. Um, it's taking time to roll out, but that's to be expected. As, as Mr. Topple mentioned, it's a 10 it's a year plan, um, but that really it remains to be seen if, uh, if the government and the other partners who have to be a part of this, the provinces, the private sector, the educational sector and so on, uh, are going to be able to build momentum and then sustain it over time, and that's the main thing that our partners and potential partners in the region, in the Indo-Pacific region, are are watching for. They they've seen Canadian enthusiasm wax and wane over the years. They want to see if this time there will be staying power in 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 what Canadians are pursuing and whether we'll we'll stay in it for the for the long run.
0: So, Mike, you bring a, a different perspective uh, to the panel. You've been uh, back and forth in and out of the region as a member of government. How important are those relationships on a government to government basis? And do they have to be national to national or can they be state to province?
7: Well, they can be both, but I'm going to carve out some space here as the contrarian on the panel uh, by. How unusual.
0: How unusual,
7: <laughs> Stu. By disagreeing with something you said right at the outset, um, you said the uh, Indo-Pacific may greatly influence. Now, you're being timid. Why? (laughs) It's going to influence. It's going to, for better or for worse, and we can determine that. We can decide how it is going, but it is going to influence us. India is going to influence Asia-Pacific is going to influence it for the reasons you've just heard from the the panel uh the economic impact is is too great you know i uh, i was thinking as as i listened i didn't know i was going to see carol taylor here tonight i'm going to violate i'm going to violate something that uh, you're not supposed to violate cabinet (laughs) secrecy carol was the uh, the finance minister and she said something that i never forgot She said this country and this province but this country need to think of asia pacific indo-pacific in the same way we thought of europe after the second world war when the country devoted what would have been billions of dollars to the saint lawrence seaway project we are the gateway we are the gateway not just into canada but into north america are the relationships at the governmental level important of course they are and they set the trend but we are this might not be the most politic thing to say. We are, as a country, horribly timid. We are horribly timid when it comes to forging these relationships. We tend to follow. We tend to follow when we think it's safe to do so. And you want to achieve an advantage, you need to be there first. I mean, Duncan talked about increases in uh, in in cargo rates. I uh, I think that's great. I think it's uh, the The relationships are complicated right now. Let's be honest about that. So I'm glad to hear that the volumes are up. But let's not kid ourselves. No one wakes up in India and says, I wonder what they're thinking in Canada today. (laughs) I mean, I wish they did, but they don't. So we have to be in their face. We have to be there in education. We have to be there in, in commerce. We have to be there in shipping and saying to them, how we can provide them with something that they want at a competitive price and we're not bluntly we're not that good at that
0: Uh, that's my statement about um, we it may really shape our future but if you take a look back over the course of the last decade there were nine lng uh, projects that were proposed here we are right now not one of them is finished (laughs) lng canada is close the Heisla. Uh, are waiting on a final investment decision on their cedar LNG. And I'm not entirely sure what the final uh, outcome is going to be of wood fiber. So have we built in structures in Canada that prevent us from from realizing these opportunities, and that's the motivation behind my question. Indira, I see you nodding, and then Mike, I know that you wanna jump back in, but we'll come back to you in a sec.
5: Well, yeah, I'm nodding because LNG is sort of near and dear to my heart being on the board of TC Energy. Yes. That's been building this coastal gas link uh, uh, to, uh, thank God, mechanically complete, 100% complete, so I think we're getting there. But just a little bit of history here, very briefly. If you look at what happened when the Russian-Russia-Ukraine war started, right? Uh, Natural gas prices spiked six times. Asia was suddenly facing a shortage of natural gas because the US was shipping all of their LNG to Europe. How did US end up with all that LNG? Well, while we were trying to get permits to build 12 projects, we built zero, they built, Second only to Australia, the largest LNG export terminals in the Gulf Coast. So I think that, you know, and what, what got in our way? Market certainly, regulation. This country cannot approve infrastructure in order to, to save ourselves, right? We, we get in our way. And I think the biggest tragedy has been the, dec- the last decade of building serious export capacity uh, in LNG. And let me add, LNG from British Columbia, Carol, both of you were in cabinet, would know this well, right? It's the most uh, environmentally friendly LNG because electrification is using hydro, shortest distances to Asia, and cheapest LNG, cheapest natural gas in the Motney Formation. um, you can tell I'm, I'm not passionate about this subject at all. Right? And,
7: and reducing greenhouse gas emissions by, emissions by displacing
5: coal. So I think with energy security back on the map and climate change never off the map, we have got to redouble our effort to get out of the regulatory impasse that we've, we've put in front of us. And, and be a major player in the energy business.
0: Well, as parent Beattie recently said, we've developed a reputation as a country that can't build anything. Yeah, that's
7: right. Well, uh, not only that, um, here is an opportunity we have to lock arms with a segment of our Canadian society uh, that has languished too long uh, in in all of the areas that matter most, that, that have not benefited from the great uh, Canadian uh, experience. Uh, First Nations, Aboriginal peoples, who who have stepped forward now and said we want to be part of this, we actually want to be partners in the development of this sector that has benefits worldwide. I mean, you know, we're you've got a bit of a choir developing here, and I have to be on my <laughs> I have to be on my best behavior because two presidents of the university I graduated from are here. So I, if, if if I'm not if I'm not, they'll hold me to account. But I, I actually f- uh, passionately believe that this is an opportunity that we have almost squandered, but not quite. And I cling to that, Stu, that not quite. There's still an opportunity for us. Duncan, uh, infrastructure uh, that needs
0: to be in place for us to realize uh, our trading relationship with all of these countries in the Pacific, where are we at from your perspective? Because you are our gateway to the, the entire region.
3: I could take the rest of the evening and talk about that. Well, <laughs> um, we'll limit you a little bit. <laughs> we have, I've just come off of spending 10 years taking a container terminal expansion, or new to container terminal through an environmental assessment process, a federal environmental assessment process. Um, and I can, I mean, you, you can't take 10 years for us to get a project approved. And I can tell you at the end, it wasn't even certain it was going to be approved. And after 10 years, yeah. you know, we're a port authority. So I mean, yeah. we have a lot more tolerance, risk tolerance in terms of, okay, we're gonna make this investment and, and we're gonna do everything we can to get it across the line. I can't see a private sector company going and spending the kind of resources we had to do that. And so we have to change that in Canada. That's absolutely essential that we change that. And if you I just look at some of, um, like in, we actually in the port, we're a permitting authority. One of the things that I'm responsible for is our permitting. And last year, we permitted, um, we issued, 100 and I think, 136 permits for $1 billion worth of infrastructure in the port. Yet it takes 10 years to get one new container terminal approved through the federal process. That can't be, that can't be how it's done. And moreover, I'd say that um, uh, it's, it's interesting, the work that we've done with indigenous communities to support those projects. I was actually, in the end of last year, in the beginning of this year, I was in Ottawa, I think, four times with two First Nations telling the government to speed up. And it was I can't tell you how, how powerful that is when you're sitting in, the, in, in those offices and you've got leadership from First Nations sitting there saying, what is taking so long? We want a decision. And so I agree completely. There's, a, an, a, there's an amazing opportunity there. We've only in the last number of years begun to, to understand that and embrace that. And uh, I think there's a huge, huge opportunity there. And I want to touch on one other thing because we were talking about LNG and um, well, this is not a big LNG project, it's an important LNG project and that is Fortis's Tilbury Marine Jetty on the Fraser right. River which is also stuck in the environmental assessment process and we're waiting for hopefully a, a positive provincial decision soon. And um, that project, uh, we have done all the risk assessments years ago in the port to be able to provide LNG bunkering to fuel...
7: At a, at a site where there is LNG. Yeah, and,
3: <laughs> and we we're ready to do it. And now I have cruise lines saying we want to bring LNG ships to Vancouver in 2024. And where are we? We don't have that facility. And it's just, it's, it can't take this long. It can't take this long. And that's just LNG. Yeah. We're hearing about the... I mean, uh, shipping lines are investing now in dual fuel methanol ves- vessels. How do we get a green methanol supply here so that we can take advantage of that opportunity? So, it's, yeah, I see it everywhere. And so, absolutely, regulation and getting these things approved is critical.
0: So, Sukash, um, you know, you are very connected to the relationship that we have with India. When you're representing us uh, in those meetings, how are we viewed? Are we seen as the country that can't get things done?
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let me start by saying that first of all, you know the diplomatic relations, you know clearly these days are pretty tense right now. Um, it will take some time to get the resolved. and my hope is both governments work together to, to get this issue resolved. We think that media in Canada is sometimes harsh and strong media in India is even like 10 times worse kind of thing on that. So if they go on negative news, that goes out into the market. Unfortunately right now, we're not in the in the good, and I think I'm not saying one government or the other government. My point there is that both governments need to find a way to resolve this, uh, this issue on um, you know, diplomatic relations that's going on right now. Having said that, I think the B2B, clearly has to kind of continue. And, um, and one thing we don't realize actually is maybe just a couple of stats, and we'll come back to a little bit directly to your question, that the the funds from Canada, including our pension funds and some of the larger funds, including Fairfax, they've invested up over 70 billion US dollars into India. Okay, uh, not small numbers. And if you look at the uh, trade activity, and I think Duncan, you might have a better idea, I think now, India is becoming the fourth largest, um, I'll say, country in the sense of the, uh, the trade volumes, uh, export uh, in, into that region. So I think it's becoming more and more kind of critical on that. Having said that still, I think the brand with respect to people-to-people connection is still pretty strong, okay? G2G, question mark right now, <laughs> but the uh, B2B, um, you know, we're dealing with Canada, there's still respect there and stuff like that, but the, the, the point you raised earlier about, uh, specifically about getting things done. Uh, in fact, Indian Oil has also invested partially through the LNG project, yeah. which people yeah. might not realize. Good, it. Huge. Huge, huge, which never went through. So they're also picking up on this point, that Canada, can you get things done, okay? So I think the point that I could made and the, all the other panel members, very, very important that we deliver, and if we don't, Guess what? They're gonna find the stuff from somewhere else. They're not gonna stop. The consumption there is so huge. If you look at it right now, we're talking about, I'll just pick on India for a minute, the, the fastest you know uh, growth in, in the middle class in the world right now. 65% of the population is 35 and below. Biggest consumer market right now, biggest workforce, they're spending, they're consuming, if we're not there, somebody else is there. So I think, from a from a you know, reputation perspective, clearly there is a bit of a question mark right now uh, because of things you heard right now. But having said that, I think brand is still from a B two B is strong, and people to people ties are even stronger that we should take advantage of and go to the go to the next level as such.
0: I want to ask Samaya here in just a moment to play a clip from uh, Sam Roscoe from uh, Sauter School of Business because I had asked him about supply chains. How are they affected by uh, tensions in relationships? Uh, Interesting thought from him. Uh, Can you roll that clip, Samaya?
8: BC businesses and their supply chains don't like uncertainty. There's been a lot of uncertainty between uh, Canada's relationship with China has been going on probably since t- 2016, uh, for various reasons. Um, those uh, That uncertainty is exacerbated as a result of COVID, the zero COVID policy in China, um, rolling lockdowns and production stoppages in China. And it's gotten to a point now where that uncertainty has lasted five, six, almost seven, eight years now. And businesses are, are really looking at their need to change and move uh, their sources of supply. And one of the primary beneficiaries of that has been India, um, and India has uh, one of the countries, when we talk about friend-shoring, they are the country that has received a lot of that production capacity, has moved from China into India, and we're seeing more and more of that, particularly in the electronics industry. Um, so a lot of the goods that we used to be purchasing here in BC as consumers from uh, you know, Best Buy and, and the like have, have come from China, uh, over the next 10 years, 15 years, we're going to see a lot of those products coming in from India instead.
0: Interesting changes. Um, And I think uh, to your point, uh, Duncan, that uh, in the short run, when there may be some diplomatic challenge, we're not going to see those uh, B2B relationships affected, but if they drag on that becomes the fundamental issue. Uh, Jeff, from your perspective, how important is it that we uh, work towards healing this relationship with India so that it doesn't drag on and put impediments in our way that would uh, prevent us from having uh, robust, uh, as robust relationships as possible?
6: Well, I, I think it's it's important uh, not, not only for the effects that it may have on trade and investment, and, there, and there's no question, as Sukesh mentioned, the Indian domestic media has been feverish uh, about canada since uh, since september 18th when when uh, prime minister trudeau made his announcement in the house of commons so uh, it remains to be seen the what kind of uh, medium to long term damage that will do to the canadian brand but as as sukesh has pointed out also the the brand is is fundamentally strong in in indian society uh, but it's important to to have a, a good relationship with india in in spite of these kinds of difficulties and in spite of values that are not uh, under you know current governance uh are not totally aligned um because india is rapidly increasing its influence as a strategic player in the in the region and in the world and so there is a strategic dimension to these relationships um, that that can have long-term effects on canadian interests and you know how seriously canada is taken as a as a player how much canada's voice is listened to in in the councils of the world um, uh, certainly is affected at least to some extent by uh situations where you have these kind of difficult relationships with two major players uh, on, the, on the world scene. That said, uh, on a societal level, uh, on a business-to-business level, you know, life life does go on and there is enormous potential uh, for Canada to build relationships in Southeast Asia, which was mentioned at the outset of, of the discussion, is uh, itself uh, rapidly the countries of Southeast Asia, and there are significant differences among them, of course, but they are... Uh, experiencing very rapid economic growth on a sustained basis. And they're also becoming, you know, gradually they're becoming more influential in regional affairs and and in global affairs. And and I think there is, uh, if you're a glass half full kind of person, you would say um, we have uh, generally a a pretty good brand in that part of the world um, and goodwill. Um, but, uh, we have to prove ourselves to be reliable partners, um, and the things we talked about earlier, energy exports being a prime example of that. Um, you know, if we can't deliver on the things that those countries need and have top of mind and really the top of mind things, you talk to leaders in the region, um, you know, in these, in countries in the Indo-Pacific region, it is energy security and it's food security and, you know, boy, Canada could be a you know big part of the solution on on both of those things if we can get out of our own way.
0: And Jeff, it's as though you anticipated the question, and I'm just gonna have uh, uh, Sean read from Slido. Uh, one of our viewers is asking much the same, and I w- would like to come along, and uh, Sukesh, maybe get you to respond first after uh, Sean reads the question.
7: Uh, the question is, uh, Canada's a trading nation, and the Asia Pacific needs our LNG, lumber, foodstuffs, and Fertilizers, uh, given the challenges with China and now India, would it make more sense to focus on other nations, uh, Japan, Korea, Thailand, and the like?
0: Sukesh. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I think obviously we need to focus on wherever the opportunity is, but to say we're gonna walk away from two largest markets, um, I'm pretty sure, not sure any business leader will make that decision. They're gonna find a way to get engaged. And just give you an example of, we talked about you know food security. You know, if you talk to, and I, I had a chance to connect with, uh, with uh, Premier Scott Moore a few weeks ago, like for Saskatchewan, India is a very, very strategic market. Look at lentils, pulses, you look at some of the other, you know, um, uh, minerals they're looking for, the potash and others, very, very critical. You know, India, you know, Canada has what India needs, and India has what Canada needs as a market. Uh, lentils and pulses as a basic necessity, basic food, and we have abundance of that. To say that we can walk away and find other, uh, you know, uh, market opportunities, I don't think that's the right strategy. We gotta find a way to get more deeper into that market where the demand is. And clearly that's there uh, in, in India. If you go and chance to look at the, um, the port operations, and I had a chance to look at the uh, Mundra port a few years ago when I was there, this is in Gujarat, the amount of scale, the volume that they're carrying right now, and that I know, I know you, know, you guys are quite busy here, lots of happening at the bank report. But you go there and look at the volume that that's coming through, because the sheer demand that is in India. Why Canada should not be taking a, a bigger stake in that opportunity? That's there. We got to find a way to take advantage of that.
0: Well, finding that way, Jeff. I saw you raise your hand.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, to to just. Um, Circle back to the the question uh, that Sean read. Um, uh, it's interesting if you when we when we talk to the major agri food producer groups, and here we're talking not only about about uh, commodities that that go in bulk, um, uh, you know, like like uh, grains and oil seeds and um, and you know potash, which is a you know a critical part of an agri food system, but also talking uh, talking about um, ingredients that go into food so you know we're a a world leader in alternative forms of protein that are used by food manufacturers in these markets uh, to put the protein into products you know snack foods pet foods and so on and uh, when you talk so when you talk to these producer associations uh, what what they're telling us is that you know china is their for most of them is their biggest market and, uh, and they see that continuing and they, they're not looking, uh, most of them are, are hoping to continue you know, the volumes they have, but they, at the same time, they say that it is not a dependable market and, and they don't wanna have to rely on it because of, basically because of the political system in China and the risk of arbitrary measures. And I think also decreasing confidence in the ability of the current government of China under Xi Jinping and uh, now, now that he's sort of unconstrained by, by term limits and has, has clearly uh, taken very firm control of the party and government apparatus, there's decreasing confidence in the quality of economic governance and economic policy decision-making in China. So they're not looking to, to, to grow there. Um, and, they, and Japan and Korea, for many of them, figure as number two or number three uh, for their products. But uh, with the demographics and and the growth potential, they see as not so great. It's Southeast Asia where they're putting their new effort and they are making trade missions there. Agriculture Canada is establishing under this uh, federal government Indo-Pacific strategy, establishing a new office, uh, a hub in Southeast Asia. Uh, They just named the executive director uh, for it, who is a a woman who was the uh, Canada's consul general to Mumbai until very recently, but before that, she was Canada's ambassador to the Association of Southeast Asian uh, Nations. Deirdre Kelly, um, and they're going to be standing up that office over the course of the of the next year. And the aim there is, having consulted with the agri food uh, producing you know communities and so the companies, um, uh, is that that's where they want to lean in and really see if they can crack open uh, new markets and uh, and you know there's a lot of things that you have to do in doing that uh, especially addressing non-tariff barriers but that's that's where they are you know businesses are putting their money into this it's not just uh, a government deciding this would be a, you know a cool thing to do a government is getting the message from business that that's where they want to Spend, you know, invest their resources and time to develop new relationships and explore new opportunities. Um, and when it comes to India, um, there there are some, you know, some commodities where it's a it's a fantastic market. Um, but it is also seen as a, and it is, and there's no question, it's the fastest growing large economy in the world. The, the growth potential offered there and favorable demographics, it is it is tremendous. Uh, but it does also have a reputation uh, of being a difficult place in which to establish yourself especially if you're a if you're a smaller player and uh, and with a, a policy environment that can be very difficult to navigate and and there is a perception I think in our agri-food sector at least that that there are uh, more welcoming environments to be found in some of the countries in Southeast Asia and that's and that's why they' are voting with their their feet and and making the trip there. It's the farthest part of the world from from Central Canada. You can't go farther than, than Singapore on this globe.
0: So in an interview that I did with Laura Alfaro from Harvard Business School, she, she had uh, co-written a paper that they presented at the Jackson Hole Wyoming Economic Summit back in August, and was talking about the great relocation within the Indo-Pacific region. And primarily that was uh, supply chains to the United States and American uh, companies moving out of China into Vietnam, South Korea, Japan being a benefactor, Taiwan um, and and Mexico. Um, But what has been pointed out is that yes, uh, those relationships are changing, but China is moving into all of those other economies And they're making direct foreign investments there because they can't do the same in the United States. So, you know, Mike, I know know that in our our pre-briefing, you were talking about the fact that we have to have different strategies with different um, uh, countries and organizations that we're, we're dealing with. But how important is it that individual businesses be leading the charge saying, these are the countries that I
7: want to be able to establish those working relationships with? Used to say, you know, what governments can do is open some doors, but business has to make the sale. Um, they are the, uh, they have to close the deal. You know, we talk about the changing dynamic. Uh, I, I was listening to Jeff, and I think his emphasis on the strategic importance of uh, what is taking place. Jeff, people are going to think we're talking about this at the barbershop. Um, <laughs> but, but it, it really is important for us to make, in my view, Stu, to make this transition as a country. We have all said it, um, I think most of this audience would say it, we have a feel-good brand. We don't have a do-good brand, right? That's the transition we have to make and we're talking about alternative markets. Anyone in this audience bought furniture lately? Jeez, you know, glad I'm not married to you. But, <laughs> um, I did get married, and we bought some furniture. It's all from Vietnam. Vietnam, yeah, it's all from Vietnam. And uh, except for the stuff that came from, with my wife from France, but that's a different story. It's old, like me. Um, but the dynamic is changing there, and I mean, Sukesh said we're not we're not going to turn our backs on the the two largest markets that account for almost four billion people but let's also recognize that there are other emerging opportunities that for a country like ours that if we're smart can we can be a little bit more agile and and adept Um, we can create those um, shipping partnerships you know uh, i want to start posing questions here but i've always been fascinated about how here we are we tout ourselves and are not just canada's major port but major port in north america and we have very little shipping support services headquartered here why is that well because we haven't made much of an effort to attract them here whether it's in the insurance sector whether it's in the other financing sector the sh- you know i'm not suggesting that the onassis shipping line is going to relocate from athens to Vancouver, but their regional center and the slide that you put up at the outset that troubles me the most, Stu, was the last slide from Conseco that said most Canadians, most British Columbians don't think of us as part of the Asia Pacific and it's, it's up to politicians, leaders to help people come to terms with how we very much are and our future is very much tied to the Asia Pacific. I would like to roll a
0: clip now from Senator Yuan Pao woo uh, and he addresses another, what I think is important issue that I want to put to all of you on the panel. Samaya, can you please roll that clip?
9: Um, you know, we, um, we're Boy Scouts and we do it with the best of intentions. We value what we have in this country. Uh, I value what we have in this country, the freedom of speech and movement of um, political views and we want to share it with the world that's a good thing Um, we should never uh, we should never turn our backs on the freedoms and the liberties and the the rights that we have over time developed in this country that's made us stronger and better but uh, our ability to change other countries is limited and for too much of our history our diplomatic history with china Uh, we have worked on the premise that we want to change China. And we've done it, you know, in part through trade, for example, we've said, well, if we trade with them, if we take more Chinese students, if we have more cultural exchanges, eventually they'll come to their senses, (laughs) right? And they'll see that we have the better way. And why wouldn't they want to be more like us? Uh, We have to stop that way of thinking. We have to stop the idea that a measure of Canadian success in its foreign policy with China is that China ends up looking more like us. That is an implicit part of our foreign policy goal. 20 years from now, China is going to look more like us because our good influence on them will have led to that outcome. It may look a bit more like us in 20 years, but it wouldn't be because of our efforts. It would be because of their own domestic impetus through political and civil society movements that bring change about in China. And we've just got to stop the idea of trying to change China.
0: Indira, I saw you lean in.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, he's correct. Uh, I think that, you know, we are going through this phase that all of a sudden we can't deal with China. We've decided that, you know, our values don't align in all the issues that have taken place. I think it's important to realize that um, if we are truly an open, democratic, liberal country as we say we are, then we should be able to respect their approach, right? We should not be the ones who are preaching in terms of how they manage their affairs, given the size difference. And I think, you know, Henry Kissinger passed away recently, uh, 100 years old. Uh, He was on the Trilateral Commission. And he had some good advice on this subject. He said, you cannot decouple from China. He said, the cost is too great. You have to continue to do business in non-sensitive areas and maintain that relationship. Secondly, he said, you have to don't start a war right, over Taiwan. And thirdly, he said, as democratic governments, we should be able to be ones who are open about, uh, you know, how we respect our values and other people's values. And he was right on. I mean, the summary is don't, don't poke the dragon if you don't have to. And I think that You know, I'm on on a couple of boards where uh, we're continuing to do business in China. And, of course, geopolitical risk in China is very high on the board's agenda. But in sectors like automotive, China is the largest automotive producer in the world. You can't walk away from that. They're leading in the production of electric vehicles. Their EVs are, are being sold all over Europe. So maybe I'm just pragmatic, right? The reality is these issues come and go, and we have to find a way as a small country to do what's best for our citizens, which includes finding a way to navigate. My final point is Australia, that had some major issues with China, have figured it out. They have reached some kind of an arrangement where they've decided they're not going to poke the dragon gratuitously either. And their principles are uh, collaborate where you can, disagree behind closed doors, right? And agree to disagree and don't, don't amplify disagreements. And I think that's Australia's philosophy and it's working for them in terms of their resources. So I think we need to when it comes to China we need to we need to really be very mindful of what we're going through right now
0: but do we not also need to be mindful of that same attitude in all of those countries totally. uh, in uh, the indo-pacific region Sukash yeah I think you know the comment was made was, was quite
4: valid but having said that I think you know we stand for our values in Canada I think we um, uh, but the key thing is that how do you communicate? And I think you, know, you talked about behind closed doors other there are issues. We should put it up on the table, have a conversation. And the biggest thing is, you know, people do business with people. You know, the government form a relationship with the governments through trust. And the ongoing dialogue, ongoing communication, ongoing relationships are very, very critical. And I think the comment that was made earlier, Senator, was the fact that you can also respect other, countries and um, and their way of kind of doing things. And obviously you have to speak up if something is fundamentally wrong and that's impacting us as a country. But we had to balance it out a little bit with uh, how we approach it, how we communicate. Um, but I'm never gonna say that we compromise our values. That has to be kind of up there. But it's more about how those get dealt with and how do we build that trust, which is so critical because without that, I think you know uh, nothing will kind of work. But I'll, I'll say one thing, just on, the, on a, kind of tied to this same topic. Although we have frozen, you know, the, the mystery, I'll say G2G relationship between India, sorry, Canada and China, but the volumes of the trade has not dropped. Actually, if you look at it, and Duncan, you can speak to it a little bit. Mm-hmm. We find a way to get through sure. all that, whether it's B 2 B or whatever it is, to make it work. The volumes have not dropped. Okay, so again, I use the same kind of analogy for India part part of it too. There's a bit some issues with the G two G and clearly serious issues that governments should work through in both governments, but that should not impact the trade and the investment that we're going through. Hopefully, that continues and flourishes.
0: You know, Duncan, you said earlier that uh, in dealing with some, many of our trading partners, you meet with them and you say we can bring uh, a tremendous sort of suite of experience and expertise in addressing large-scale societal uh, issues. Are we really at odds with so many of these countries uh, in, in, in the Indo-Pacific or actually we're probably fairly closely aligned? And if that's the case, why don't we just work together rather than sitting there virtue signaling?
3: Well, in my case, I'm mostly dealing with business people. So we're not, um, uh, I'm not encountering a lot of that, uh, the differences. I'm encountering a lot of places where we have things in common and we're working to build things in common. And, and yes, we've maintained through all of the ups and downs with, with both China and now India, um, we've maintained trade with those countries and those business to business relationships continue to happen. Um, India, when I started the port 20 years ago, wasn't even in the top ten of our trading partners, and um, it was number four last year. I think it's number five this year, but it'll probably be number four again very soon. And um, and we're seeing really large volumes also with with Indonesia and and uh, Malaysia. What is when we think about how I just want to pick up a little bit in terms of Canada's positioning and, and how we manage this. This um, I'm pretty passionate about human rights, but I mean, how do you how do you how do you balance that um, uh, as a relatively small country? And um, partway through this trip, I actually started the trip, believe it or not, in Regina, uh, talking to the premier about exactly what we're <laughs> talking about here. But I was in the Middle East, and somebody in the Middle East said to me, they were very upset about, uh, they're doing business, they do a lot of business here in Canada. They were very upset about Canada's positioning um, around, uh, around a lot of these, around India and, and, and around some other things in the Middle East. And the comment is why don't why do you have to get out in front of your allies so much? Can't you work as a block, as a group? Why does Canada have to go out there and, and take it all on, on the chin? And it seems to me that we need to do we need to do more of that. Why do we have to be, you know, the big one that goes out and and, and makes those pronouncements? I think we can we can probably take the temperature down a lot by by thinking about that that more carefully. So that would be my perspective on. It.
0: So why do we? Mike, you've got uh, thoughts on this. Why do we decide that we have to step out in front of our allies and and say this is the way we all must live our lives?
7: I don't think we should ever be shy about telling the world what we believe in. It's a little more difficult and uh, risky when you start telling other people what they should believe in. Mm Um, look, I don't, <laughs> I'm a living testament to the challenges associated with governing four and a half million people. Um, those that have been in the government of Canada live with the challenges of governing 35 million people. I'm not going to presume to tell someone how to govern 2 billion people. Um, although I, uh, like all of us have some views on the, on the sanctity importance of, of, of individual human rights. We convey that I think by demonstrating who we are as, as Canadians and, uh, and what we believe in. And I, I think, by and large, we, we do a pretty good uh, job of that. How, um, how out front, I, I'll give you a quick anecdote. Um, Sukesh probably knows this, but what, what government in the world was the first to issue government-backed bonds in both Indian currency and uh, Yuan, Chinese currency? Which government in the world? It was the government of British Columbia. We were at the leading edge of that. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this. Today, I would do it in India. I wouldn't do it in China. Because um, that's a way we have to send a signal that the relationship government to government isn't as where it needs to be. We have to think strategically, as Jeff said, about where it is and how we choose to send these signals uh without cutting off our, our nose despite ourselves and uh, and that's something that historically Canadians have been pretty good at um we we seem to have missed a bit uh, on that of late but but I think we can get back there Jeff
6: yeah yeah I, I, and I think it's uh, uh, this is this is fundamental and as you know, I think all of us have agreed we don't we don't want to shy away from um, from expressing in what we believe in. But I, I think it's really important to, to note that there are ways to do that. And I, I was a diplomat for Canada. I was Consul General of Canada for five years in Hong Kong uh, during the, the protests and the imposition of the national security law. And, you know, that was a case. Where we worked very closely with allies, with like-minded democracies, with the U.S., with the U.K., Australia, New Zealand at times, um, Western Europe, uh, and some individual countries, and the European Union quite importantly, and we issued a, a number of joint statements and we took actions that were that were coordinated. And you know, Canada Canada can be proud of the you know the the actions that we took and the, and the positions that we expressed. Um, knowing also that we, that, you know, that was a case where we didn't get out in front of, of the others in the, in that, uh, grouping, which is a pretty good grouping in the world to be in. Uh, in fact, the, it was the Americans who occasionally, uh, got out in front, um, uh, with their rhetoric, but you know, there are ways of doing these things. And I think the most effective way you know, in international diplomacy and the appropriate way for us as Canadians is, number one, to be principled uh, in the views that we express. There is a a network, a system of of international agreements stemming from the UN Declaration on Human Rights that, that have been very broadly agreed, including by countries like China, and that and we've built a a system under which we we are called to hold ourselves and each other to account and so canada opens itself to scrutiny in international human rights bodies and we invite visits by by rapporteurs we that that can be awkward we don't like what they say but we think it's important to do that and we set an example by doing it and i think the countries that are effective, at, and there are a number of, of European countries that I think can provide a good model on this, that they are effective in conveying their, their views in the international system and, and publicly in, in interactions uh, involving you know, countries like China. They do it from a place of principle, um, basing it always on what, what has been agreed to And saying, look, this is just these are obligations that we all have and we have and we have an obligation to hold uh, each other to account. And, you know, in terms of whether you keep all these things private or take them public, I think it's quite important to to be public, to do it in a respectful way. And again, I would say in a principled, consistent way, don't call out, you know, one country when you wouldn't when you're not calling out um, others uh, by the same standard, and that can be awkward at times. Um, but it's it's also quite important, like I don't want, when my kids have kids, I don't want those kids to grow up in a world where it's been agreed that we all keep quiet uh, when we see really egregious violations, you know, things like, like torture, like genocide, um, you know, places where people disappear in the night and their families never hear from them, and it's done at the hands of the state. You know, we should we should be working together to uphold a system where that kind of thing is, is understood to be not okay. And the other reason for doing it publicly is it creates uh, friction for those who do these things. Um, it imposes some degree of cost. And I, I really believe, certainly from my experience of interactions with China as a diplomat over, over three decades, that, um, that in that system, they are conscious of the costs that come with certain action, they, you can tell that from the reaction when they are called out on something, uh, they do react in a way that makes you feel like it's important to them. And and if they didn't care, they wouldn't they wouldn't react that way. So, uh, but you know, you can we have to deal with the world as it is, not the world that we that we wish would exist. And that means we we have you know we need to do business with with uh, countries all over the world um, um, in a way that, um, that we can make our way in the world and, and have prosperity for Canadians to enjoy, um, you know, to be able to fulfill themselves. uh, Um, but, um, but, you know, you can do that without, um, without abandoning all standards and just saying, you know, we're, we're going to be complicit in, in things that are, that are, you know, repugnant to, to basic human values. John, uh,
0: can we go to the first question here from Slido? Because I think it's a a very interesting one in light of what Jeff has just been uh, talking about.
7: A question from uh, Justin Yee. What is one thing Canada can do to support the security of our democratic allies in the Asia-Pacific in an increasingly unstable geopolitical landscape?
0: And I think this speaks an awful lot to what the American agenda is as well, because that is an element that we have to look to (laughs) Indira. You're asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you.
5: <laughs> democratic values? Well, I think that, the, you know, I mean, as a small country, uh, there are several ways. I mean, I come back to education, you know, helping to educate those populations about uh, democratic governance, what works. You know, I, Sri Lanka, I came from Sri Lanka, where the democracy has disintegrated over 75 years. Uh, And I think partly it's because, you know, and I I really appreciate what Jeff said, countries have not held successive governments to account, so we need to stand up when uh, values that ultimately compromise the freedoms of the citizens and reduces their quality of living, we need to call them out. Sri Lanka was one country that I think Canada had a major role to play in terms of the uh, ethnic uh, violence there. And um I think it's just it's just us being willing to stand up for democracies when uh when 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 necessary. so I think it's just all of those things and really, Jeff said it very well, you know,
1: mm-hmm. standing
5: up for our values, which is what I meant earlier, by standing up for your values, you don't necessarily have to accuse others of not doing so, but you do stand up for your values, and you say these are the these are the standards which, which we hold people accountable for. So I think democracy is part of that value set: freedom of the press, you know, uh, independent judiciary, and uh, and essentially uh, free, elect- free and fair elections.
0: So something that I want to put to all of you is that we have not talked about the United States tonight uh, because <laughs> they are part of Asia Pacific as well, and they are a dominant, dominant force and player. And the perception is that they're not too happy with us in our strategy right now. How important is it in the long term that we uh, recognize that where the United States goes, they want us to go there with them, otherwise they're not taking us? Uh, How important is that relationship? Sukesh, I'd like to start with you.
4: Yeah, I think it's pretty pretty important kind of thing. I think we have a very strong uh, ties uh, between Canada uh, and the US, but if you look at it in the lately in some of those um, I won't go into details, but some of the meetings that have taken place Canada is not on the table on on, on A number of those meetings that's concerning uh, if you think about it that have we lost that importance of being on the table for very important conversations, especially when you're talking about the whole you know uh, some of the discussion on the whole in the Pacific with defense and, and on in other areas some key points. So I think we gotta we gotta also make sure that on both sides that that you know Canada is also being proactive uh, and working very closely with our our strongest ally and, 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 and our strongest neighbor uh, for us to show that we are here to support and being involved, being engaged. And the US you know also needs to realize that the importance of, of, of Canada as an ally uh, in uh, for um, as, as, as to neighbors kind of thing on that. But I think in, in some of those, and it's in, it's in the press and the media kind of thing on that, that we were missing on some of those important discussions um, and we were not on the table.
0: Mike?
7: I think the, uh, the Americans are looking at us right now and, and are confused. Um, I don't think they discern a coherent strategy uh, on our part. Um, I think there are times when uh, we as Canadians uh, over the last few years have looked south and and had the same problem. Um, A a year into my marriage, I can tell you when partners don't, uh, because I'm pretty much an expert now, Stu. Um, When uh, when partners don't understand what each other's objectives are, they're going to have difficulty working together to achieve that objective. Canada and the U.S for all of the conversations we've had today about the fundamental importance. I mean, your your last question, I was going to say, what's the one thing Canada can do um, uh, strategically in the geopolitical sense? It is, in my view, to forge closer relationships with India. I mean, I just think that is so fundamentally important today for a whole host of reasons. But that does not diminish the importance, the fundamentally underlying foundational importance of our relationship with the U.S. And Churchill called it the special relationship. Um, during the, the Second World War and the in, in the years following, that is that that same that that same mantra uh, applies more than ever to us with the, uh, the the U.S. and I think there's an obligation on the part of both countries um, uh, to sit down with one another and make sure uh, and establish a clear understanding and clear agreement on what our objectives are going forward, dealing certainly with the world. Uh, but also with uh, Asia and Indo-Pacific.
0: Duncan, from your perspective, how important is our relationship with our largest trading partner and coupled with our strategy moving into Indo-Pacific?
3: Well, I think you heard me speak earlier about uh, my perspective in terms of working with our allies more closely, and I think that's, that's fundamental, and the United States is our best friend. And no matter what, and we, we will have challenges, and we've certainly seen uh, a bit bumpier road with our best friend over the last number of years, but it's a critical relationship, as is the relationship with our other allies. And to the extent that's possible, as I agree with what Mike is saying, in terms of you know, understanding each, of each other's objectives, and to the extent that we have mutual objectives or there's alignment, we should be working very closely with them. And I think for the most part, we will. Um, and there will be areas where Canada may t- maybe needs to take a different path. But, you know, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're very clear about what we're doing, if we're building that understanding, and it doesn't look like we're doing things in a haphazard manner, um, they'll, they'll probably have more, more comfort in us doing those things than they would um, in the current circumstance. So I think that's, uh, I think the U.S. relationship is, is really key. But not just the U.S., I would say our other allies, in particular their 5I allies. Jeff? I you
6: know, I, I think very simply we need to spend a lot more on defense. Um this is this is fundamental and it's not coming only from the Americans, although uh it's very important to the Americans that we do, but also our European allies are are privately and publicly urging Canadian leaders to get serious about Canada's defense spending. Uh, and uh, i would say in terms of how washington sees canada uh these days i would say i think i think uh washington is a is a little happier since this indo-pacific strategy of the government came out a year ago because it did it did deliver messages it positioned canada for instance vis-a-vis china you know calling china a disruptive global power and the and the the in, the investments that have been made in, in defense under the, under the strategy, which are, which are the largest spending items under the strategy have been welcomed, but, but, you know, we, we have been a free rider among our friends and allies for too long. We need to spend a lot more on defense and, you know, governments of, of both of the parties that have been in government in Canada, I are equally guilty of having neglected this uh, for a couple of generations now. And uh, the, I've got something also for the doves, not just for the hawks. We also need to spend a lot more on official development assistance. Canadians are, are generally surprised to find that we are the among the least generous on a per capita basis relative to our income. We are among the least generous of the developed countries when it comes to the, uh, the portion of our national income that we devote to official development assistance. And that that's noticed. So we just need to summon the political will to to make those investments um, if we wanna be taken seriously in Washington and other capitals.
0: So uh, to wrap up here, Indira, I wanna start with you because I watch and see you listening to what's been <laughs> happening in, uh, in our discussion today and, and- we all have thoughts about what's the most important thing that we want somebody to take away from what we've been talking about tonight, having listened to one another, but also having our own thoughts. So what would you like uh, members of our audience uh, to take away from this discussion today? And then I'm gonna ask each of you the same question.
5: So I would like people to take away the opportunity Canada has with respect to impact, on an issue that is enormously important to the Asia-Pacific and to the world Indo-Pacific, and that is energy and energy security. Uh, If there is one problem that I think will uh, help the region thrive is access to secure and cheaper energy with lower environmental impact. Not to mention that we don't believe in renewables and supporting all of that, but our ability to play an important role in that area where we can punch clearly above our weight, I think is a message I'd like people to take away. And the support public needs to uh, provide or make clear to governors the importance of removing all of the hurdles that prevent Canada from playing, from playing that role.
0: Mike, same question. What do you want people to take away from this discussion tonight?
7: We have this powerful brand. Like it's incredibly powerful. It makes people feel good. They think good things when they think of us. And when you're on a panel like this and you hear learned people, um, you know you're you you understand that we we have the talent. Uh, we have the the folks that can create those relationships and. Uh, and, and create those opportunities uh, that will serve not just Canadians but people in, in other countries. And we, and we have to do it. I mean we talked a lot about India today. Is there a more fundamental, are, are, are the fundamentals, could they be more sound? Um, a, a common law heritage or members of the Commonwealth. I mean, the similarities uh, in India, you've got, you know, we, we make a big deal about having two official languages or what, 28 language groups, but the language of business is English. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the fundamentals are there, but even beyond, beyond India, we walk into the room with a brand that people feel good about, but now we have to demonstrate that they can do more than feel good. They can do good we can accomplish things. And that is gonna take a collective effort and it is there is a role for government and there is a role for the private sector. And both have to step up beyond what we have done thus far. Duncan, your closing thoughts?
3: The world wants what Canada has and we need to be better at being able to give the world what we have. And that uh, that's, energy is a, is a key area for certain um, another area is, is that we talked about earlier tonight, critical minerals. When I saw the, the federal government strategy on critical minerals, I thought, that's great. Now how do we get those projects approved? So we, we, need, to, we need to get out of our way, our own way, in terms of getting these things done. Um, by doing that, not only are we going to enhance our economic well-being, but we're gonna help contribute to democracy and stability in the world. And we have seen the opportunity that was squandered as a result of not being able to get these projects approved in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict. If we could have stepped up in a quick manner, and we should have been in the place already to have done that. If we could have stepped up in a quick manner, we could have brought a lot of stability to, to our partners. And we weren't able to do that. So I think we're letting the world down. And I think that's what we need to do.
6: Jeff. About uh, about our defense and aid spending, as I've said, I think we need to get serious about having a national infrastructure. We're the we're the only, you know, major economy among our peers not to have a national infrastructure strategy, and uh, we need to get serious about being a reliable energy supplier. Our our allies in in Asia, in particular, you know, desperately want this from us, and I think we need to make our foreign policy. And again, this is this is not a knock on one party or another, it's a knock on all of them. We need to make our foreign policy based on our national interest and not on uh, narrow domestic uh, political considerations. Um, and we've had the luxury for too long, we've had the luxury of being able to do those things and of not being strategic um, and, um, and, you know, we I think we've now realized that that we can't afford that luxury anymore. The the things are catching up with us and we need to get serious.
0: Sukesh, I'll uh we'll wrap up with you.
6: Great. Uh, thanks, Stu. I think if you look at it, you
4: know, one message of one learning takeaway is we talked about the Indo-Pacific region. We talked about China and India, but it's a vast you're looking at you know 40 countries or so, if you're looking at you know, Pakistan, looking at other kind of countries and such, you know, it's a big, um, big market. Um, and I think Canada has a very important role to play. And the role is around food security, energy security, and that is the betterment uh, and the development of that region, okay? So if we take our self-interest out let's for the time being, just for the in the growth and the fulfillment, and also the fact, the need that is there for those two, Canada has a very, very important role to play. Now, you know, indirectly, you know, we will benefit from that because we have our resources, our technology, our know-how that can contribute. So I think it's a win-win situation for the biggest region who's looking for what we have got, and we have to find a way to contribute, and in that process. That's good for for Canada. That's good for Canadians. That makes the world better.
0: I agree. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Pakistan. We have the consul general from Pakistan joining us in the audience tonight, as well as the consul general from the UK, um, because two countries also who are very very uh, invested in what is happening in the region. Glad
7: I mentioned Churchill. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now you've thrown me off my. uh... (laughs) the discussion is big. Uh, The opportunities are enormous Um, and this requires further conversation. It's a panel that we'll come back to in the future. Thank you all for your time tonight. Um, We burned through uh, 90 minutes in in, in no time and and I think we've only scratched the surface. So thank you for your time. Thank you for everybody's time in the audience here online. And very, very uh, importantly, I want to thank our sponsors who uh, have made this evening uh, possible. RBC, KPMG, um, Helijet, of course, and then our ongoing uh, annual sponsors, um, Stem Cell Technologies, BD uh, Landlord BC, Fortis BC, Polygon, um, uh, this digital supercluster research co uh, at Vancouver Sun and BCIT. With without their support, we wouldn't be able to put on this uh, this series. What I think, which I think is uh, filling a very important information gap. So, thank you tonight. Mm-hmm.